it's going to be super cheap to use state channels or plasma or optimistic rollups or other things like that to scale Ethereum using layer two technologies and eventually bring all that innovation down to the user so that it's as invisible as TCP IP is to the internet. On this episode of Coindesk Live Lockdown Edition, Coindesk's Nolan Bowerly speaks with Hudson Jameson from the Ethereum Foundation about private transactions, client improvements, and dealing with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This episode was live engineered by John Biggs, edited by Rob Mitchell and Adam B. Levine, and sponsored by ARIS-X, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Large Cap Investment Fund. We join the conversation in progress now. For folks who don't know Hudson, I want to give a bit of a background here. Hudson was an early Bitcoin guy. Actually, a lot of people knew Hudson from the Bitcoin world. Hudson is a bit of a Fraser personality. He had a whole life before. And then the spinoff show with Ethereum really created the model for what a lot of community organizers have based their own work on for other protocols and stuff like that. So Hudson is really a, a pioneer in getting a community together and having all the right infrastructure. And by that, I mean getting the developers the resources they need to help build on the program. And really, when you deal with these decentralized networks, having someone like yourself ends up being a really important role. So describe a bit what you do with Ethereum to get us going. Sure. Thanks so much for the intro. So with Ethereum, I consider myself a kind of community and developer liaison beyond just like community management with Reddit and Twitter and things like that. I work with the core developers working on the low-level protocol updates and network upgrades to make sure that they understand what the community wants and the community knows what the core devs are up to. I facilitate their bi-weekly calls, and I also help with the Ethereum Improvement Proposal Specifications uh, Repository. It's basically the standards that get put into Ethereum, like ERC-20 token standard or all the EIPs involved in the recent Istanbul upgrade. That's my main job. I also do some stuff at the Ethereum Foundation around security and DevOps, which is more just behind the scenes stuff. But you also have a role in your rather large event. Yeah. Ethereum Foundation event every year. I've backed away a little bit from helping with DevCon, which is the large yearly Ethereum conference that the Ethereum Foundation puts on. However, I usually do end up getting involved and I've been working with DevCon since DevCon 1, I guess. So I guess I'm like the old timer. (laughs) Now you do do some stuff with us and help us broadcast to the whole industry what's going on with Ethereum. And to give us a mini version of DevCon, sort of a highlight reel of DevCon. And last year you helped us do that with our change log session, which was a 1.0, Ethereum 1.0 update. And this year you've helped us put together our agenda for foundations for the Ethereum Foundation, which will be on May the 13th the Wednesday. You've got a pretty interesting agenda that you guys have put together. Are you familiar? Do you, do you remember a bit of it? I know you yeah, did yeah. a bit of your, uh, so let's go over it a bit. Got it pulled up right here. There's a group called the Ethereum Cat Herders, which is a group of Ethereum kind of organizers who do community management and project management across the decentralized ecosystem. And uh, they're the ones who help put this together the most. There is some Ethereum Foundation content for sure within some of the talks, but for the most part, it covers the gamut from 
the roadmap, Ethereum 2.0, the cutting edge research with stateless Ethereum, and then some applications in DeFi and uh, governance applications like Burn Signal. So just kind of everything you wanted to know about Ethereum and bite-sized pieces from DeFi all the way to the protocol level stuff is going to be in there. And we're going to get a sense of 1.0 movements, activity, what's going on, 2.0 as well. We'll see both of them side by side. Yes, absolutely. We got myself and Tim Vico doing 1.0 and then Danny Ryan doing 2.0. That's great. And I'm looking forward to it. It looks like a really good selection of talks and can't wait to bring those updates for you guys and for a lot of other protocols in space. We think this is a good way for people to get those one-stop shop for all the updates and not have to go all around the world to get it uh, everywhere. Although it is always fun following DevCon around. So oh, yeah. A great time. So what I'm trying to get to here with this talk is a bit of a, let's say, assess the worldview of Ethereum folks as all of this stuff has changed. So, of course, Ethereum is a, a great big traveling global community with all kinds of folks scattered around really the embodiment of this sort of decentralized group of people that are trying to create these networks. And you guys definitely do have one of the big use cases of Ethereum so far has been events where we do in a big event and we see it as a use case because it's a chance to talk about these big subjects. But you guys in particular, the events are a big part of the Ethereum, let's call it culture. Let's think of Ethereum as a place for a second, right? Let's just imagine it's a people and a place. You know, you guys definitely have this as part of your culture. What are you guys going to do to adapt? What's going on with that? So you're absolutely right that a lot of what's part of Ethereum is the traveling. And going at a deeper level than that, a lot of the time at these conferences and meetups and large gatherings, that's really uh, like sharing, like mindshare, but then also dogfooding Ethereum applications. That's where Burner Wallet came from. That's where proof of attendance protocol came from, a lot of different things you might have heard about in the ecosystem and stuff that now other protocols want to emulate because we tried them out and they got real world attention at these conferences. One thing that I find really interesting is that there's been this immediate shift and flexibility to go to online virtual conferences and virtual meetups. I know that there's been, I believe it's Metacartel who's been doing a VR meetup that's gained some popularity with people who have VR headsets and the Ethereum ecosystem. And uh, right now, I believe the Solidity Summit should be wrapping up, which was a two-day all-virtual conference where you got to go to this neat website and you could like go to the lobby hangout area and chat room, or you could click a different thing and a video would pop up about the main speaker. You could jump in there with your webcam and ask questions. And it was really, really neat. They used something called Interspace for that which is really cutting edge. And um, I'm excited about all the innovation that's coming out of this. It's really going to push things forward. Any of those innovations slated to debut at DevCon 6 now? So with DevCon 6, we're looking at the situation very, very closely. I'm not as involved in the team as I you know, would have been at DevCons 2 through 4. So I don't have that much insight on the plans or anything like that. But I will say that we're looking at this really closely and we hope that it can be attended in person, of course, but we'll adjust as we need to, obviously, with anything we need to do to support the health and safety of people attending. And where was the uh, continent? I don't think the exact location had been announced. 
I don't know if the continent's been announced either, so I'm going to have to be quiet okay, on that. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure, sure, sure. Um, it's an idea that I have that you know you can test your worldview by your ability to predict the future. If you predict the future correctly, in retrospect, your worldview was probably a little more accurate. It's just a way to, let's say, assess how you see things. I know a lot of folks in a lot of industries, talking with tons of old friends as the lockdown has gone on, and they say, oh, you know, this is such a big adjustment professionally and such a big change professionally. When I go into the bubble of cryptocurrency folks that work in this industry, it doesn't strike me that they're saying the same thing. So I've had an idea for a long time that a lot of cryptocurrency folks had sort of already predicted this world, not the pandemic part but the need for some of these services because of centralized failure. Has that been something you've noticed as well within talking with all the folks working in Ethereum who are already scattered around the world? Have you seen generally workflows in Ethereum come to a halt? Have there been a lot of delays because of this? And have you seen folks from the Ethereum world say, no, this is other than the pandemic side and the virus side, the idea that a catastrophe could come and sort of stress all of these centralized systems. Is that something you've seen around there? Are there conversations you've had? And anecdotally, can you share what you've seen from the whole world? Sure. So I've definitely seen anecdotal evidence that this is a big shift in what a lot of people are used to as far as traveling, like we mentioned earlier, to conferences and getting to meet up in person. It's really affecting everyone. However, At the same time, I think that our industry was more prepared for it than most other industries. For instance, the Ethereum Foundation, we don't really have that many central, we have hubs where like maybe 10 to 30 developers gather in a co-working space or things of that nature. But otherwise, over maybe 100, 150 of us were completely decentralized. We just work from home or work from whatever office space we have in whatever city we live in and communicate over Discord and Telegram and Zoom and all kinds of stuff like that. So to a lot of people, it wasn't really a shift and we're all really fortunate and try to understand that perspective because a lot of people aren't that fortunate. A lot of people have been furloughed, lost their job, had to quit because their job requires actually leaving the house. So um, we're all trying to get more sunlight, but some of us didn't do that in the first place. And that's that's kind of like we're seeing the need for sunlight now. Tell me, you know, from your bird's eye view, from looking out over this Ethereum landscape and having these conversations over the last few weeks, months now, have you seen any Ethereum developers have really clever ideas to address the needs that are apparent because of the of the lockdown. Have you seen anything that has really stuck out of smart people from the Ethereum ecosystem having really interesting answers where Ethereum can play a role? Yes. So the Geth client for Ethereum is one of the top clients and the lead developer's name is Peter. I'm going to butcher his last name, but I think it's like Peter Salagi or something similar. He developed a open source COVID tracing app that's had a lot of involvement from people around the world who aren't even in Ethereum. It uses different open source and decentralized components. It's uh, very privacy oriented so that you can have this uh, tracing tool that doesn't invade your user privacy and you get to have the choice of what information you give up to authorities. And you hear about all this, the pandemic is going to be a way for 
large governments to come in and push through laws that are um, going to be unjust that they keep on over beyond the pandemic. And there's a real legitimate fear from that. So that's why there's organizations, including and individuals like Peter, who are pushing for these privacy-oriented applications that utilize blockchain. And I know Coindesk even ran an article recently about some United States representatives or something like that looking at blockchain as a possible solution for COVID tracing applications. So it's really neat how blockchain is pervasive and infiltrating a lot of these hot topics around the world. You did bring up the guest client and that rolls me into one question that I would like to address on this. But I noticed that Josh Stark, a dear friend of mine, I love Josh. I was in Toronto for those early years of, of Ethereum and yeah. um, had the, the good pleasure of knowing Josh. And Josh has always helped me uh, get to the bottom of things in, in Ethereum when I had questions. Josh, yesterday on Twitter, asked you to ask me a question related to a data tool that Coindesk and myself personally, I put a lot of energy into it. And the way the data tool worked was the following. You can even see a bit of it in this COVID-19 stuff, right? I, I hear, oh, we have 20,000 ventilators we need, but I, I never had any context. I don't, I don't understand what 20,000, like, how many are there? How many, how many, it's just random numbers, right? So I figured that was a problem in blockchains for a long time, and market cap wasn't solving it. So I came up with this idea that we could use market interest and use Bitcoin as a measuring stick, a little bit like water is to Celsius. We know it boils at 100 and we know it freezes at zero. That's arbitrary. We put the zero in the 100 and then we just divide it into even spaces and you have Celsius. So what I tried to do was the same thing with Bitcoin. That doesn't mean a thing can't go above Bitcoin. You can get much higher than Bitcoin, uh, just like you can go much higher than 100 degrees Celsius. But we wanted to get to that point in a methodological way that made sense. So it was always comparing apples and oranges, you know, Bitcoin to Ethereum. And we would take all of the metrics from GitHub and turn those into a score, you know, weight and stuff like that. But it turns out with the number of clients that Ethereum had, it imbalanced the score. Some people said because it's a different language and it's basically the same logic, but put in a different language, which means you're awarding a word double the score because it's got a translation for lack of a, of a better explanation. And so we we're never able to get our minds around it. We definitely wanted to add tons more Ethereum stuff, but not just on, a, on one client, you get something else. Maybe where Lightning could be seen as a comparative to some of the other clients. Not that it is, but we're dealing with heterogeneous data. So counting the developers on other platforms versus the developers that are working on these, these other languages. That was the challenge for us. And unfortunately, we just never got our head around it to the point where we wanted to create a benchmark system where you could benchmark constantly against things. You could always have a benchmark, whether that was Bitcoin today or Ethereum today versus Ethereum tomorrow. The point was to roll out a ton of benchmarks. But in the end, what I'll tell Josh Stark is very simple. He said they've been promoting uh, false data. We were never promoting. No one looked at the tool. So it's okay. We always knew it was not widely popular. It was really only Josh and a couple of the Ethereum guys that were upset about it because we could see how many people were looking at it. So it was never that great. Definitely want to keep pursuing a tool that will allow us to, change, to compare things, and we will definitely spend some time with the Ethereum folks to make sure uh, we get it right next time. But the idea of counting all of Ethereum's developers and, and putting them in a way for us to judge them against the rest of the community would be a tool I think a lot of people would want to see. So we're going to keep trying to get it. But there it is. That's why. The short answer is very simple. And I say to Josh, if he's watching, Josh, we didn't spread the information. Not for the reasons you think, but we didn't spread the information. 
I think it's great that you guys have this open source too and a GitHub repo for people to see where your data is coming from. I mean, it, as it was criticized as being theater, I opened it, people could contribute, but we were never able to pull it out there. So open source in the sense we wanted everyone to contribute. I do want to do that again in the future, for sure. I think that's one of the great ways we can get to the bottom of how to do fundamental analysis on cryptocurrencies because it's a huge challenge. Cool. Well, we'll be watching. So, um, yeah, we're excited to get it together. (laughs) Come help us. Great. So thanks. (laughs) Thanks for listening to my excuse. And I hope a lot of the Ethereum community is here and uh, heard it and and understand there is no hidden agenda here. Just uh, inability to get the methodology squared away that we were all coming. There you go. Sounds great. So Josh, there it is. There it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, Josh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Josh later and be like, hey, watch this. It's worth well, it. <laughs> in his defense, uh, and, and for the folks listening who don't know Josh very well, Josh is one of the founders of Youth Global, a conference series. It's always been a great reference to me when I'm looking for uh, the right subjects around Ethereum to put on stage or the right insight of, of what we should be covering. I can understand why he was a little upset. He gave me a lot of his time to fix this, and it didn't work out. So let's go to a question. We got Saul. What's your view on marketing with Ethereum? What more would you like to see on the marketing front on ETH 2.0? This may be in reference to a tweet I put out a month or two ago that basically said that I had a change of heart where I used to think that development should come before marketing and that something should be in completed state from a technical perspective before marketing takes its place in the trajectory of a project. And now I'm seeing with all of these blockchain projects coming out more and more. And if you look back at history of technology, like the VCR versus LaserDisc or HD DVD versus Blu-ray things, it wasn't always the best tech that won out. Sometimes it was a combination of technology that worked average to above average, but that had better marketing. My viewpoint is Ethereum needs better marketers. And we need better ways to onboard people to talk about the technology in a way that normal people can understand. I mean, the tools are going to get there to where it's going to be easier and easier for people to use, but we have to be keeping up with that from the non-technical perspective as well. That's going to be very important in ETH 2.0 because staking is a whole new paradigm and something that not a lot of blockchain projects are doing right now. So it's not going to be like people can jump right in and know what they're doing. Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Development Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. Is there 
an application that you see that wouldn't require you guys to give people a background and an education on decentralization and the merits and the risks of centralization? Is there one out there that you know that will just show people why this stuff is so useful? In the case of Bitcoin, it's easy to save. It's such a great use case. You know, you don't have to explain to anyone. Here's the hard asset. You can save it. What do you think for an application, really uh, the bread and butter of Ethereum, what do you think is one on the horizon that won't require marketing, that will just sell? And I would say the ERC-20, the ICO, the actual contract to raise money, would be one of those. Didn't have to explain to people why this works. Is there something like that? Absolutely. The two that immediately come to mind, one of them is not specific, but just DeFi applications in general. A lot of people don't get the chance to participate in traditional financial systems because they have to be accredited investors or they aren't given the knowledge because there's just so much stuff out there. And DeFi makes it a lot more simple to participate. But the bigger example, the one that I think is more important, is going to be gaming. And the specific example from that is Gods Unchained. Gods Unchained is a trading card game built on Ethereum where the cards are, I believe, NFTs technically, but they basically are tradable assets on Ethereum. And you play the game like Magic the Gathering or Yu-Gi-Oh! I'm not into that stuff, but from what I hear, it's similar to Magic the Gathering. And you play the games against people and you build your decks and you can buy decks and there's rarities with the cards and you can trade them. And I see a future in gaming where you have these Gods Unchained decks that you can trade for gold in World of Warcraft or special skins in Overwatch. And you have this open silo-free system that you can cross-trade assets from games. And it's something that you can understand if you've ever played RuneScape or World of Warcraft or any of those games. You have these digital assets that have real-world value or can have real-world value if you make it in a way that would blockchainize it. I see. So games have been around for a while and there are now multiple platforms building on those games. And we've seen some folks, let's say, pursue Ethereum developers to build games on other platforms with the logic being perhaps DeFi is clogging up the Ethereum chain too much and that the premium on transactions would be better spent on, a, let's say, a chain dedicated to gaming. Is that something that really feels like a, an existential threat to the chain, or is it fine and you can see it scaling anyway with this multiple chain approach? Most blockchains at their base layer can't scale for anything right now, hardly, including Ethereum. We're not able to support hundreds of thousands or millions of users who come on and utilize the system, and they have to understand gas and other external forces that are involved in uh, doing a transaction. However, if you extrapolate gas cost and other extra features that have to happen for the economics of the chain to work, if you extract those away so that the company is paying for gas themselves and that you have these scalable transactions on, like you were saying, what you were saying was another blockchain, but really that could be a side chain or some other type of layer two blockchain protocol where you have all of the transactions going back and forth. And these transactions aren't life or death or even high value transactions. So they're going to be less likely to be attacked in mass. And so it's going to be super cheap to use state channels or plasma or optimistic rollups or other things like that to scale Ethereum using layer two technologies 
and eventually bring all that innovation down to the user so that it's as invisible as TCP IP is to the internet. Great, great. John, let's take a couple more of the questions I saw. JJW has two. If you would like to answer live, you can actually talk with these folks. So I have two questions. One is, would you like to see the EF be more transparent about how it uses its resources? That's question one. And then two is, you've done community management and growth for Ethereum for a long time. I'm curious what models you use to guide your thinking about how you do community management effectively. And by that, I mean, like, do you take lessons from some other industry or some other field and, and apply those to this sort of new thing of how do we create a community around a crypto network? Thanks so much for the questions. So for the first one, how would I like to see the Ethereum Foundation be more transparent or if I'd like to? Absolutely. And I think that we're getting there. I'm not in a position at the foundation to really talk about what those plans are, I would say. I'm not even privy to many of them, but I will say those plans are in place. I've been hearing about to make things like what organizations are within the foundation, like departments and things like that. There's accountability from a blockchain perspective about how much Ether the foundation has, and I think that's a really powerful thing that Ethereum brings that we're able to showcase at the Ethereum Foundation. But yeah, we're not hitting the mark entirely on it, and I think that's something most people can agree on. But we are trying to improve constantly, and I think that we'll definitely get there with time and with community feedback and with all the kind of things that go into making these things happen. For your second question, what do I draw influence from to be a community manager and effectively manage uh, the Ethereum community? I would say that. I just try to think about it with not feeding the trolls all the time, being patient and generally in a good mood to most people, and beyond that, listening. So those are kind of the qualities that I try to think about when I'm interacting with the community, and generally that's well-received. Beyond that, as far as overall strategies, I really want to make sure that everyone at every level is heard. So beyond listening, you need to amplify people's voices. Someone comes into the community, for instance, someone came the other day on the Fellowship of Ethereum Magicians forums and said, I have this really cool idea about governance structures and how you can improve the Ethereum governance, uh, how you have it today. I got their email address and their Telegram address, and we've been chatting, and I was like, I'm going to get you in touch with the people you need to talk to who have similar interest in order to support what you're trying to do here. Doing that individually can seem tedious and maybe not worth it if you look at it from a broad perspective, but really that's what matters because for every 10 people that you try to onboard that way, at least one of them is going to stick because the Ethereum community is just that magnetic and just that good to the people that it brings in. We've got a couple more. How come the Coindesk data thing is still showing false data on Ethereum? I don't think it is anymore. I don't think it is anymore. And I wonder, I wonder if there's a way to air grievances using this. I know there's still open PRs that haven't been merged or commented on. So that might be what they're referring to. We pulled the data. So they haven't been merged, sure, but it's not being displayed. Yeah. So maybe they just want more communication on it, yeah. is would be my guess. That's what I've heard complaints about. It was like Festivus. It's the airing of grievances. Is Ethereum the correct platform or protocol to develop electoral anti-fraud voting systems? Can you provide a sample of where it's proven working service? So blockchains right now shouldn't be used for voting. 
for a lot of different reasons. However, for more low-key elections that are like not official, like it's going to change the way your city, your community, your federal government runs. There are some things today that are being developed and there's some really, really powerful applications in the zero knowledge proof space. One of them is called Macy, M-A-C-I, by Ouija Co, Kobe Gherkin, and a few other people. They're just excellent cutting edge cryptography developers. And what they've done is They've made an anti-collusion Byzantine resistant, I think I'm getting all the terms right, it's a bunch of buzzwords, but it basically they've made something that makes it so that you can vote on a blockchain and prove that you voted without revealing who you voted for. It's still in development. They are doing a few things, including a trusted setup for that. I think it's not running anymore, but you can check it out by looking up Semaphore trusted setup. It's all really, really fascinating stuff. So look into Macy. If you're curious about the latest and greatest on that with Ethereum. Otherwise, there's some stuff with staking like Ether when you're voting or stuff like that. But beyond the stuff that's been around for a bit and NACI, I haven't seen anything really worth pursuing from a broad, like, let's implement this everywhere standpoint. Isn't decentralized finance something great developed over Ethereum? Yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a really good thing. And uh, um, I think that... a question per se. Yeah, not a question, but hey, shout out to DeFi. It's doing its thing. And I think that it is going to be one of the... Here's a hot take. I'm not like a DeFi maximalist and I'm not even always a DeFi fan because there's so much risk involved and there's so much that could go wrong. And sometimes it looks like it's like being held up by toothpicks and some of the platforms we're just itching for a major, major event to happen. And then that's going to make people lose trust in Ethereum. So I really want more applications like censorship resistant and focused ones. Voting eventually would be a cool one. Having something that you can, at a layer two technology level, have private Ethereum transactions to get money in and out of countries that the government is suppressing their individuals, stuff like that. I think that that's going to be something that'll be powerful along with DeFi. And DeFi is really important. It's really great, but we need to keep perspective on all the applications that Ethereum can help run. So Hudson, you, you brought up that you know, you're not a big DeFi person. I'm wondering within Ethereum, is there any schism or worry that the DeFi folks and all the collateralization of ETH and all these things that are going on can actually sort of seize up the network and become an interested party that has more sway, let's say, than a lot of other people who use the network. Is, is that something that is worried about? Is yeah. that something that is widely felt? Because when I look at it, I imagine it would be. Yeah. So I haven't heard that discussed much, but that's a really interesting perspective to say that one use case or a series of use cases can push out other use cases, if I understood your question correctly. I think so. so yeah, that, that would be a way of saying it. That's somewhat of a concern, but that's also really a, I guess the best way to put it is like a free market principle that sure. the most popular things will rise to the top. Sometimes that's going to be bad because things that may arguably be more important are going to be pushed under. But at the same time, I think this will solve itself over time as we attack scalability with things like blockchain sharding and we attack uh, security incentives with proof of stake and we do other things to collectively make the blockchain stronger and able to handle more capacity. 
I think people aren't talking about it as much because mostly it's all about DeFi right now. So there's not like another thing that's being pushed out. What about, let's say, even, even from the marketing point of view, let, let's go back to that marketing question from earlier. Combining that marketing question with some of these high profile hacks or attacks, let's call them, not necessarily hacks, the attacks that have come. So, you know, when the mainstream media follows cryptocurrencies, it's number goes up, number goes down, or theft. This is adding a whole new vector of theft or lack of a better word, you know, stealing people's money. Is there a worry in marketing that this is going to increase the negative attention and the risk associated with security of digital assets? I think that's something you see from where you're sitting. Yeah, from where I'm sitting, I think that we're doing better with our security practices. And I don't say that to try to shill that DeFi is going to be better over time, but I'm more saying that to say it's all about narratives. It's all about how you frame things. So from a marketing perspective, if I was in charge of all Ethereum marketing, I wouldn't focus on that, obviously. <laughs> but furthermore, it would be something that needs to be told to people in ways that are measured. So you need to understand the risk when you get involved. I think there's not enough of that. There's certain applications like MyCrypto that does a really good job of that and putting users' education first. And then there's other ones that are you know, show up overnight, have no code audit, and then people put millions of dollars into it and they don't have any warnings on their side. It's going to be about education. It's going to be about increasing security and auditing standards. And along with that, what the marketing should follow with it. My questions are exhausted for now. So Hudson, thanks a ton for coming. We've enjoyed the sit down and we're going to see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really good time.